This is Michael Ventura, long distance call. My question is, if they permit you to murder them, is that still murder? Because I find it amazing how gently media in general has covered Donald Trump's relentless rallies since his hospitalization for COVID-19. As though this recent Trump rally phenomenon is merely more news rather than a deadly campaign to increase his power by endangering the people who love him most. As you probably know, attendees at Trump and Pence rallies sign waivers that say, in sum, you and any guests voluntarily assume all risks related to your exposure to COVID-19 and waive, release, and discharge Donald J. Trump for President Incorporated and the Republican National Committee of all responsibility for any illness or injury. An extraordinary, out in the open, in your face, betrayal of people who adore him. How tiny they must feel to need a Trump to glorify. He gives them a thrilling opportunity to view and hear him in the flesh, warns them in the waiver that to do so could mean illness and death, death to the attendees and their loved ones and their co-workers, warns them that it's all on them. He has no responsibility, no liability, yet he expects them to happily sign, and they do, by the thousands and tens of thousands. How tiny must they really feel to need a Trump to glorify, even unto death? It's a matter of record that Trump's super spreader rallies leave wreckage behind. Hot spots of the virus, some of them especially terrible, with cases shooting up 25%. This man tours the country, hurting, and yes, killing people. And this is different from his incompetent, impotent response to the virus as our head of state. An impotence that has killed many thousands, but we know this. We know no one any longer has any reason to expect competence of this kind of person. But these deadly rallies are not incompetence. He knows exactly what he's doing. Once again, it goes back to Charlie Loving's Trump 2020 t-shirt. Trump 2020, no lives matter. It's nothing to do with incompetence now. He is intentionally endangering people who adore him, and they intentionally allow it. This is a spectacle unequaled in my readings of history. This man tours the country, murdering people. I don't know what else you can call it. He knows the odds. He knows what's going to happen to a predictable percentage of them. And they know the odds too. And this is where the spectacle becomes unbelievable, except you better believe it. These people commit themselves consciously to enter a situation in which they may well be murdered albeit murdered by a proxy virus, and may well spread a murderous contagion at home and at work. Even after a lifetime study of fascism, I've never run into anything that crazy, or rather crazy like that. I'm not posing as a scholar, but I do read a lot, and I know of nothing quite like this jovial, celebratory, sinister, murder-suicide collaboration of crazy. 
Now, I'm not just ranting here. At least I hope I'm not. I'm saying something serious, which is, can Trump win? With a people capable of this level of complicity with the utterly crazy, of course he can. You can't make predictions about craziness at this level. I don't think he will win, but I don't doubt he can. Not through chicanery either, though there's plenty of that, but by the vote. And if he loses to these people who knowingly risk their lives just to see him in person, to these people a loss must be unthinkable. They'll never believe it. And look at how he loves it. This man has never looked better. Maybe he'll collapse all of a sudden, but as I write, he clearly gets some rock star style sustenance from the adoration of his crowds. In the legend of Dracula, remember, the vampire cannot enter your abode unless invited, but once invited, it's over for you. Not because the vampire kills, he doesn't, not at first. First, his will becomes yours. All you wish is to feed him, be his food. They invited Trump into their living rooms via TV and, oh, it's Halloween time. It's possible I've gotten carried away. Let's throw a change up. Take it at a different angle and a different pace, a different place. I don't live in Texas anymore. But altogether, I've lived in Texas 15 or 16 years total, long enough to know that no one is an expert on Texas. When it comes to Texas, you just never know. I did my longest stretch, 11 years in Lubbock, Texas, which circa 2012 was judged in a Forbes voter survey. It found Lubbock, Texas is the second most conservative city in the country. The first is Provo, Utah, and the third is Abilene, Texas, about 120 miles down the road from Lubbock. Sometime around 2012, Jasmine and I stopped at a barbecue near Sweetwater, which is near Abilene. In this barbecue joint, nearly everyone except the cooks was white, and a special kind of white. And Jasmine and I, we talked about how anymore you never see this kind of white anywhere on TV or in a movie unless they're being made fun of. Unless they're being made fun of. We wondered what that felt like. Sometime before this, in 2005, my friend Dave and I took a road trip to Kansas and Nebraska because we'd read that there were fewer people in the western plains of those states Fewer people now than in the late 1800s. We wanted to see what that looked like. We stopped at a Kansas diner around lunchtime. Can't remember the name of the town. The joint was busy, mostly white men in overalls, clearly people who work hard. Dave might pass for an out-of-town businessman, but me and my hat and my gray ponytail, and not even that, just the me-ness of me. I was clearly not from around there. A tall, very strong-looking, farmer-looking fellow. He's sitting at a table with a bunch of men, mostly older than he is, and he looks at me and can't look away. His eyes 
blaze with hate. His face was twisting with hate, trembling with hate. I promise I'm not exaggerating. I've never seen anything like it. Not directed at me, but at what I stood for for him. I looked back straight at him, because I do, and because I didn't know what else to do. Nothing went down, which surprised me. I thought I was in for trouble. But no, he finally looked away. All I could figure later, because of course we ate fast and got out of Dodge, which in fact is in Kansas, but that's not where we were. All I could figure later, I finally wrote up in a piece for the Austin Chronicle. I called it Red State Blues, published March 30, 2007. It ended like this. They're furious. Time has passed them by, and they don't know why. They've been done. They've done and been everything they were taught to do and be, and it's come to nothing. Their kids are leaving town. Their towns are dying. Their leaders are failing them. They're helpless to stop it. They're losing it all, and there's no one to give a damn. They didn't believe this could happen, could not conceive that their toil would be futile and that their dreams would die so hard. I have nothing to say to them. Do you have anything to say to them? The 21st century seems to have no place for them. It could, sure, but not the version we're enacting at the moment. So by the thousands, they risk their lives to see Donald Trump in person. They think he likes them. And they're so angry at being sidelined, passed over, forgotten, made fun of, that they want to see the guy who doesn't do that, who makes fun of people whom they've come to hate. And he's famous, and he's president, and he says he's going to make them happy. And so what? That's a lie. At least he cares enough to come and lie to them. So by the many thousands, if they get the virus, it was worth it. As for we who can't imagine fealty to a Trump, the numbers are good, and that means something. The numbers for Biden are good. Follow the money. Look at their donors. According to the Federal Election Commission, Biden has 4.9 million, million donors. Trump has only 2.7. In North Carolina, where you might not expect it, Biden has raised $18.9 million, Trump 17.9. And across the USA, the donor split among what are politely called the less educated, the split isn't so much as you'd think. Biden's raised $591 million from the less educated, Trump $630 million. That's 40 million more for Trump, but when you're losing suburbia and you're losing the cities, and when wealthy zip codes have donated more than 300 million more to Biden than to Trump, well, that feels good this time around, whether I approve of wealth or not. Biden's North Carolina numbers look solid, consistent, and though I have my doubts, Pennsylvania and Michigan's numbers also look solid, by which I mean consistently over many days and with many polls, those numbers hold up for Biden. So if Biden wins the White House and Democrats hold on to the House and Democrats win the Senate, hey, it could happen. White women are apparently in Biden's corner this time. Quinnipiac, however, has white men for Trump and against Biden 57 to 36 percent, a 21-point spread. Those white guys see this election 
as a verdict on them, and they're partly right. A Biden victory means this above all, that it has finally been fulfilled in America, what James Baldwin said nearly 70 years ago, the world is white no longer, and it will never be white again. Obama wasn't the tipping point. This election is. Charles M. Blow expresses the fears of many when he writes of a Trump defeat. The question then is how an angry Trump and these angry men will react to defeat and humiliation. I don't think that's the question at all. Rather, that's what Trump and his Trumpists would like us to believe and fear. Yes, there will almost certainly be trouble, and some of it will likely be bad. But that sort of violence is impotence gone putrid, with nothing left to contribute but tantrums, spasms of chaos. That will be as it will be, but it won't change the course of this history. The question after a Biden win is scarier to me. What shall we do next? For, for much, so much, needs to be done. And all of it is urgent. What shall we do next? This is Michael Ventura. Long distance call. Good luck out there.